morning. 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 Turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. Just a heads up, uh, as most of you know, uh, a severe typhoon hit in the Philippines this past week. It's one of the most severe storms to ever hit land. And the uh, the Baptist Global Mission is an arm of the Southern Baptist Convention. And they are now receiving donations to help the people of the Philippines. We have a link on our website. You could go directly to Baptist Global Mission or you could find that link on our website. But if I could encourage you, to give sacrificially to that cause because, as I've said before, the, the Baptist Disaster Relief Ministry is not just about social work. They go with a pickaxe pick, in one hand and they go with the Word of God in the other. And so they go and they love these people holistically. They, they take care of their tangible and physical needs, but they give them the gospel as well. So please uh, pray about giving sacrificially Uh, to this important cause. Well, let's pray and we'll get into uh, what Jesus has to say to us through the pen of Dr. Luke. Father, as the rain comes down outside, we're reminded from the prophet Isaiah's words, as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven and does not return there, but gives seed to the sower and bread to the The eater, so shall your word go forth from your mouth. It shall prosper in the thing for which it is sent. And so, Lord, we are reminded, even as we contemplate the rain, of the efficacy of the word of God. And we pray today by the very spirit of the word, the spirit of Christ, that this word would go forth in word and in power and full conviction. We pray you give me clarity and liberty and ease of expression and unction that you would edit my sermon even as I preach. But Lord, that you would open our hearts to behold the glory of the risen Christ. We ask this in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Hopefully you are familiar with Adoniram Judson. He is the founder, the pioneer of the Baptist missionary movement in America. You could call him the morning star of this movement. He was a child prodigy by every estimation. Uh, He prospered in school. He was valedictorian at every school he graduated. And by the time he graduated from college or seminary, um, he was being offered professorships from such institutions as Brown University. The uh, world was at his disposal, his fingertips. He was a man who had a bright future ahead of him. He was offered a very distinguished church at a very young age, his early 20s, just down the road from his parents. But God had birthed in his heart uh, a a burden for the people of India, um, the people of Burma. He recognized that they did not have the gospel. But he also recognized that it was a dangerous place. But he determined that he was going to go and be a missionary to these people in India. And along the way, he met a woman named Anne, who would eventually become his wife. And in what many consider the greatest missionary biography ever written, To the Golden Shore, uh, his life is recounted. If you have a desire, a burden for missions, I encourage you to read this book, To Fan the Flame. 
If you don't have a desire for missions, I encourage you to read this book because it would be a shame to stay in that condition. But in this book, we read the life of Adoniram Judson. In fact, there's another book written about his wife's life, uh, My Heart in His Hands, Ann Judson. These are must-reads in my estimation. But on page 83 of this book, he is now determined she's going to be his wife, but he must ask for her father's hand or his father's permission. And here's what he writes uh, to the father in a letter. He says, I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more more in this world, whether you can consent to her departure and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of a missionary life. Back then, if you went on the field, you didn't come back. They didn't have airplanes. It was too expensive to come back. Whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all this For the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you. For the sake of perishing immortal souls. For the sake of Zion and the glory of God. Can you consent to all this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory? With the crown of righteousness brightened with the acclamations of praise, which shall redound to her Savior from heathens saved through her means from eternal woe and despair. That doesn't really fit 21st century American Christianity, does it too well? Unless she felt compelled to marry him and go by obligation with him overseas, here's what she wrote to her friend shortly afterwards. I feel willing and expect. Now, this girl is in her early 20s. I expect if nothing in providence prevents to spend my days in this world in heathen lands. Yes, I have about come to the determination to give up all my comforts and enjoyments here. Sacrifice my affection to relatives and friends and go where God in his providence shall see fit to place me. And they went. And she was there 17 years before she died a very gruesome death at the age of 37. And he was there for 40 years and died and was thrown out into the ocean with no tombstone to mark his life or his death. Of course, the the logical question that we have to ask, let's be honest, was it worth it for Adoniram Judson and Ann Judson? Was it worth it to forsake all for the sake of the kingdom? In fact, it was a question he asked himself. He lost over five children 
to death while he was in India. He lost two wives. Anne was the first wife. He lost a second wife because of sickness. Early death. Was it worth it? It's a question we all have to ask. It was a question he asked. He, he forsook his land, his home. He forsook a very promising career and even promising ministry in America. He forsook health. He forsook professional opportunities. He spent 21 months in a jail in India that was 30 foot by 40 foot with five foot ceilings with a hundred other people in that cell. 21 months. They never cleaned it up for 21 months. And again, he lost his family as a result. Is it worth it? That's the question we have to ask. Is it worth it to forsake all for the sake of the kingdom? When you commit to Jesus Christ... Now, we have a really messed up understanding of what it means to be a Christian in the 21st century America. Uh, To be a Christian is more than just praying some sinner's prayer like it's a magical formula. To be a Christian is to commit your life to Christ. It's to repent of your sins. And to come to Him with no will of your own, but to bow to King Jesus. You are submitting to His kingship. Everything else is an anomaly. Everything else is fool's gold. Is it worth to submit to King Jesus? There are commands to obey. There are pleasures this world has to offer to forsake. There are sacrifices we must make. Is it worth it to follow Jesus for the sake of the kingdom? Is it worth it, young people, to be ostracized in school, to be unpopular in school for the sake of the kingdom? Is it worth it, adults, to lose a job, to lose a promotion, to sacrifice financially for the sake of the kingdom? Is the cross we are called to bear worth it? All for the sake of the kingdom. Maybe you don't know this, but this question was first asked by the disciples. In fact, we see that question being asked in our present text. Now, keep in mind, we've already seen in Luke chapter 5, many, many, many months ago, that they forsook all. They left everything, Luke chapter 5 tells us, to follow Christ. And it had been difficult. It had been extremely difficult. And it's only going to get even more difficult. Most of the disciples will die as martyrs for King Jesus. And so in this particular text, he is asked some questions about the worth of forsaking all. And Jesus in this text is declaring to the disciples. Luke is declaring to Theophilus. And the Holy Spirit is declaring to Fisherville Church in the 21st century that yes, it is worth every sacrifice we could possibly make to follow Jesus for the sake of the kingdom. In fact, our text is going to give us two very compelling reasons, motivations to forsake all for the sake of the kingdom. Now, the first motivation we're going to see in verses 28 to 30 is that we can't outgive what Jesus gives to us. 
We can't outgive what Jesus gives to us. Look with me in verse 28. He says, And Peter said, See, we have left our homes and followed you. Now, of course, Peter's question is provoked by what Jesus said to the rich young ruler. So let's do a brief review. A rich young ruler comes to Jesus. We saw this last week. And he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It's very clear that he's not coming to Jesus as the son of God. And he believes there's something he can do to merit eternal life. As if God is impressed with our filthy rags of righteousness. Jesus knew that. And he said, well, if you want to do to get into the heaven, here's what you must do. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. All right? Do not bear false witness against your neighbor and honor your father and your mother. Well, I've done all of this since my youth. And Jesus recognizing that this man did not understand the spirit of the law, which indicts us all, says then, Do this one thing. This one thing you must do. This one thing you lack. Go and sell all and follow me. Give it to the poor and follow me. This man left sad because he was wealthy. And the wealth has control of his heart. His wealth was his Lord. His wealth was his Savior. His wealth was his Messiah. And Jesus understood if you're going to enter the kingdom, you can only have one Messiah, and he is the only true Messiah. If you're going to enter the kingdom, it's because you have committed your life to Christ, been united to him in repentance and faith. Because there's only one who's ever kept the law. It's Jesus. There's only one who has actually been crushed by the Father in the place of sinners for having broken the law. That is Jesus. And if you're going to be a Christian, it's not by your obedience. It's by the obedience of our Lord Jesus Christ. This man could not change his heart. In fact, the disciples said, well, if this man can't be saved with this kind of prosperity gospel that they have, who then can be saved? And Jesus said, with man, it's impossible. Man cannot save himself. But with God, all things are possible. Only God can save a sinner. And at this point, Peter begins to ask a question. Well, if God is the only one that can save us, then what good was it for us to give everything away? I mean, we have forsaken all for the sake of the kingdom. And so he's asking asking Jesus, essentially, was it worth it? I can't save myself, and yet we've given everything away for the kingdom. And that's where Jesus begins to respond to Peter's question. Notice in verse 29. And he said to them, truly, I say to you, you think it's, you're asking me if it's worth it? There's no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children For the sake of the kingdom of God. Who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come. Now, there's a sense in which every believer must do this. He says, we must forsake everything, including family and home, for the sake of the kingdom. 
A Christian is nothing less than someone who's determined to have Jesus over everything else. That's what a Christian is. In fact, it has been well said that a person who has Jesus plus everything has no more than the person who has Jesus and nothing else. Okay? And a Christian is someone who understands that. But what does he mean here about forsaking family for the sake of the kingdom? Now, before we get into what he means, let's clarify what he does not mean. He does not mean that it's permissible to leave a spouse for the sake of the kingdom. It's not permissible to leave young dependent children for the sake of the kingdom. You don't disobey God in order to obey him. You don't get out of the will of God in order to get in the will of God. Okay? So that's not what he's saying. He's not encouraging that it's okay to abandon family responsibilities for the sake of the kingdom. That would be a terrible interpretation of this text. We have to interpret Scripture with Scripture. Rather, it's a call to abandon the idolatry of family. That's what Jesus is saying here. There is a sense in which some easily fall prey to loving their family before they love King Jesus and the kingdom of God. It's an unmediated love, an unmediated devotion to family. In other words, it's when you love your family at the expense of the kingdom and kingdom concerns. Families who are just floating around so busy that they don't have time for the things of God. They don't have time for family worship. Um, their, Their commitment to the local church is hit and miss. They don't have time to evangelize people in their neighborhood or people in the workplace. They, family comes first. Okay? Now that is family idolatry. And when that happens, not only is the glory of God eclipsed, it brings harm to your family. Okay? So that's not what he's saying here. What he's saying here is to turn from the idolatry of of family for the sake of the kingdom. Now, in some parts of the world, that's what Christians do when they're baptized. You know, we tend to yawn through a baptismal service. But in some parts of the world, when a, when a Christian is baptized, it is jaw-dropping because you know what's coming next. They're going to lose their family. They're going to be denounced. They're going to be forsaken by their families, disowned, or perhaps even killed in certain Muslim countries. To be baptized publicly is a death warrant, okay? In fact, we heard recently about a a man in Utah who was converted out of Mormonism and his wife took the children and left him, okay? Uh, That's one sense in which it could mean. Um, It may mean... Taking your family and moving to another part of the world for the sake of the kingdom. Leaving parents and grandparents. I met a couple like that in Zambia. There's a couple who's got college educations. Just a beautiful family. 
uh, mid to late 20s. And they live 23 hours outside of town in Zambia. They come to the capital city of Lusaka every three months to buy groceries. They only see civilization every three months. And I said, what if you forget something at the grocery store? They said, we have to wait three months to get it. We're not coming back. And I asked them, I said, what is the hardest thing about living in the bush? They said, seeing our family every four years. That's how often they see their family. Every four years. Um, For some, it may mean letting go of the idea of having a husband or a wife for the sake of the kingdom. And of course, although the stress here is on family relations, uh, this stems to everything. It's being willing to let go of those things that hinder either my conversion to Christ or my walk with Christ. Jesus is saying, you can't outgive me when you do these things. It may be your time. It may mean your money. It may mean your talents, your reputation, whatever it may be. And when you do these things, Jesus says, you can't outgive what I give you in return. In other words, Jesus' return on your investment counterbalances the sacrifice. Now, the key term here, notice he says many times more. There is no one who's left these things for the sake of the kingdom. And we've already seen, for those of you visiting, that the kingdom of God is the establishment of God's saving reign, covenantal presence, and authority over the hearts of people through the Messiah. That's the kingdom, okay? It's a rule and a realm. And he says, for the sake of the kingdom, who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. This term, it's one word in the original language, many times more. It tells us you cannot outgive what you sacrifice for the kingdom. In fact, Matthew and Mark's account tells us that we will receive a hundred times more than what we sacrifice. Uh, David Gooding, who says in his commentary that making sacrifices for Jesus' sake now is akin to making a long-term investment that constantly pays rich dividends in the here and now, and it never negatively affects the capital. In fact, uh, you see that the blessings don't just come in the future, they come in the present. Now, there are many people, uh, many Christians, let's be honest. There may be some sitting here. You're truly a Christian. But when you think of following Jesus... You think, yeah, it's a good long-term investment. I get heaven. That's a pretty good deal. But it's a killjoy in the present age. All right? Because notice, he says the blessings for here and they are for the future. But Jesus is promising both blessings now and blessings in the future, eternal life. Untold blessings. You know... 
He's not promising that you'll be wealthy. He's not promising that if you give, your bank account's going to be full. That's a prosperity gospel. You end up serving yourself when you give for that purpose. He's not promising you'll be healthy. Some of the godliest, greatest heroes of the faith died martyrs' deaths in poverty. He's not promising you're going to be famous. He's not promising you prestige. Those are all the American gospel. That's the 21st century version of the gospel. It's a very Western understanding of the gospel. But he does promise you the blessings that will, we will receive in eternal life in the present age. In other words, the blessings of eternal life mediated to us now. Blessings that cannot be taken away. All other blessings like health and wealth and prestige and fame, all these things that God might grant you will eventually die. They have a termination date. But what he's promising here cannot and will not be taken away. Peace and joy. Life. Eternal life. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Communion and fellowship with the living God. Things that cannot be taken away even by your earthly circumstances. You know, all of us have things that we do and experience and they're fun and they're joyful. But we know deep down in the back of their mind, there's this nagging frustration as we know these things are just temporal. For instance, you're at a party, you're enjoying the party with friends, but you know that party's going to end. You're on a vacation. Halfway through the vacation, you start looking at your watch and the date on the watch, and you go, man, this time next week I'm back at work. This vacation that I've been looking for for weeks and months is now Almost over. You're the joy of raising children. Great joy in raising children. But you know that soon, sooner than you can even imagine, those children are going to be leaving home. Okay? There's a lot of blessings that we can experience that are just temporal. Uh, This past week, Tony Romo, the quarterback of the Cowboys, had a mic on him. He's talking uh, to the backup quarterback before the game. Now, he's about to play an NFL game. It's a pretty dangerous game. But you know what he's concerned about? That this isn't going to last. He says to his, his teammate, man, I wish this could last forever, but I know there's coming a time in the, in the very near future that I'm not going to be able to do this very much longer. I love being the quarterback of the Dallas Cowboys. Heather and I watched a, uh, a documentary this past week of one of the great bands of the 1970s. And they're, they're sitting in their, their limousine after a show at the height of their careers, the 1970s. And one of them says to the other, you know, as great as this is, if our next album isn't as good as this album, it's not going to last. We got to keep putting out good albums or this isn't going to last. That's how it is with with. Blessings and joys in this created order. But that's not what Jesus is promising here. He's promising mediated blessings that are foretaste of life to come. And having believed, you're marked in him with the seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing that inheritance. In other words, 
Eternal life begins in the here and now for the believer who has forsaken all to follow Christ. When Christ was raised from the grave, eternal life erupted into this present age. And when we trust Christ, when we commit our lives to Christ, we flee to Christ, we are united to eternal life itself and all the blessings that come from eternal life. That's what he's promising here. Things that will endure. You see what he's doing? Again, this conversation is coming off the heels of his conversation with the rich young ruler. This rich young ruler could not give up these things. He's holding on to all this stuff that eventually will take him to eternal destruction. Why? Because he thinks, the rich young ruler thinks that these material things are the key to him having happiness and satisfaction and fulfillment in life. And Jesus says, it's impossible for you to give up more than I'm going to give you. But you have to walk away from it. You have to turn from it. Someone who did was a 19th century missionary to India named Elizabeth Freeman. Living under extreme, I mean torturous circumstances in India. Here's what she writes her niece back home. I hope you will be a missionary wherever your lot is cast. And as long as God spares your life. For it makes but little difference after all where we spend these fleeting years. If they are only spent for the glory of God. Fleeting years. She had an eternal perspective. Be assured there is nothing else worth living for. And because she had that perspective, she was willing and able to to forsake it all, to go to the most extreme circumstances, seeing these circumstances as light and momentary affliction, as Paul would describe them. And I'm sure uh, because she believed there was nothing else worth living for, she would have said there is nothing else worth dying for. As her martyrdom, a short time later, at the hands of Muslims, proved. You know, I don't know what you're struggling to give up. As we saw last week, it doesn't necessarily mean you give up all your money or your material things. Um, What we're called to give up are the idols. The things that are distracting us from following Christ. Because Jesus will not have an idol or a rival in your life. What are you refusing to give up? What are you treasuring too much to give up to follow Christ? Maybe it's something that's keeping you from being converted to Christ. Or maybe it's something that's getting in the way of your walk with Christ. Jesus is saying, if you don't understand, I cannot out... I cannot but outgive what you could ever sacrifice for me a hundredfold. And so if you're standing there with a rich young ruler, and trust me, if you're refusing to do that, that's where you're standing. You're standing with a rich young ruler, and that's not a good place to stand. 
If you're standing with him today and saying, I just can't let go of this because this is the source and the ground of my happiness and satisfaction. Jesus saying, you are deluded. And that's what he's reminding the disciples. He's saying, you let go of it and I'll fill you up. Not only in the eternal life to come, but in the present age. You cannot outgive me. And so the first motivation is we can't outgive what Jesus gives to us. But the most important motivation is found in the second part of this text. It's the greatest motivation. We can't outgive what Jesus gives for us. Note with me in verse 31. And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. Notice, written about me in the prophets. Jesus' cross is not plan B because plan A did not work. It's not a contingency plan. It's the plan of the ages. And the Old Testament is not about nation building. It's about redeemer sending. The Old Testament is about Jesus Christ. The Old Testament is preparing us for Messiah. The the prophets spoke about the day of the Lord. The day when God would save his people, vindicate his name, and judge his enemies. The day of the Spirit, when the Spirit of God would be poured out on his people. The day of new exodus, the day of new creation, the day of resurrection. And that day would be ushered in by a suffering servant. The son of David, who will ascend to a throne through a cross. That's what the prophets spoke of. So this is not plan B. This is the plan. This is the purpose for which God created the heavens and the earth. The cross. And the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is making clear here that this was the divine purpose. His suffering. His death. And His resurrection. We've already seen this language in chapter 9. And let's not look over this language of Son of Man. He said, everything that is written about the Son of Man will be accomplished. That is Jesus' favorite designation of himself, the Son of Man. In fact, he's the only one that used it. He used it of himself. But he's not coming up with this language out of thin air. We have to understand the New Testament writers, yes, they were inspired of God. And so when they wrote, they wrote the inerrant, infallible Word of God... But much of what they did as they were inspired of God came through their exegesis. That is their study of the Old Testament. And that's, I believe, how Jesus came increasingly more aware in his childhood of his messianic office. He was studying the Old Testament. And he grew in his knowledge of God. He grew in his awareness of his office of Messiah Where did this language of son of man come from? Well, the most important, perhaps the most important text in the Old Testament that speaks to this is Daniel chapter 7. And in Daniel chapter 7, 
you have this vision, which really is a picture of world history. And you have these four beasts coming out of the sea, which represent the Gentile kingdoms that are rival kingdoms to the kingdom of God. There is one like the Son of Man who comes and on behalf of the Ancient of Days, he crushes these kingdoms to death. And in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, it says, I saw in the night visions, behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, that is the father, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. You know, what's interesting here is the way he's going to defeat these Gentile kingdoms, these rival nations. He's going to conquer them, ironically, by apparently being defeated by them. Look with me in verse 32 and verse 33. He will be delivered over to the Gentiles. Represented by the beasts. Okay? Now, in Luke chapter 9, we say that he's delivered over by the chief priest and the scribes and the elders. And so chapter 9, we see that the Jews are culprits to his death. But here it's the Gentiles. Which one are you? It doesn't matter. He's indicting us all. We all represent those who crucified the Messiah because of our sin. And he says he will be delivered over to the Gentiles. Notice the verbs. Don't overlook the verbs. When you're studying a a, a text, the verbs will take you to the meaning of the text. Note the verbs here. He will be delivered over. And he will be mocked. The Son of God mocked. The one who created the ability to speak and to even use words, form words, and even humor will be mocked. The creatures mock at the Creator, the agent of creation. And he says, He will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. Jesus knows what's going to happen. And after flogging him, 39 lashes, many died from flogging. They will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. How does he defeat the Gentile nations, the rival kingdoms? He is crushed to death by the Father on behalf of sinners. And in so doing, He takes the guilt of our sin and God crushes His Son in our place. And then He raises Him from the grave, defeating sin and death and demonstrating that the debt has been paid. That's how He crushes The Gentile nations. He saves us. 
He takes former enemies and makes them friends through the cross and through the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. But there's something else he's doing here as well. Remember Peter's question? We've forsaken all. Was it really worth it? Jesus is saying, it's so worth it. The kingdom is so worth it. Look what I'm willing to endure for the kingdom's sake. I'm willing to go through all of this for the sake of the kingdom. Yes, it's worth it to forsake all. And that's what Hebrews 12, 2 fact means when uh, the writer says, Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him. What's the joy set before him? The kingdom. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame. And then he sat down at the right hand of God the Father, having defeated sin and death, having consummated the kingdom, having ushered in the age to come. And yet that's so counterintuitive to the way we think. You die to live. You give to gain. That's so different than the way we think. And that's why Jesus has come on the great reversal project. Because we think differently than the way reality really is. We think the wrong thoughts about God. We think the wrong thoughts about ourselves. We think the wrong thoughts about Messiah. We think the wrong thoughts about our sin. We think the wrong thoughts about heaven. We feel the wrong things. We love things we should hate and we hate things we should love. We're devoted to temporal vanities that have a termination date. And he's come on the great reversal project. He's coming to reverse that which is backwards because of sin. But the disciples still didn't get it. They still didn't get it. Notice how this passage ends, verse 34. But they understood none of these things. The disciples, the one that had been in with him at this point, two and a half years. This saying was hidden from them and they did not grasp what was said. Now this didn't, does not mean they didn't understand the words he was saying. They weren't ignorant. Okay? They understood what he was saying. They could have gone and rehashed what he was saying. They did not understand its significance. Okay? They didn't understand its significance. And that poses a question for all of us this morning. Do you understand the cross's significance? The reason they didn't understand is it did not fit their conception of Messiah. Their conception of Messiah is that he's going to defeat those kingdoms that come out of the sea with a sword, with a crown, on a white horse. It did not fit their conception that he would come and Win the victory through defeat, through a cross. The question is, do you see the significance of the cross? Yes, I prayed to receive Jesus into my heart in 1978. I've got it written in the leaf. That's not the answer. How do you know if you see the significance of the cross this morning? It's simple. Your life 
is characterized by fast, speedy repentance and desperate faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, you have forsaken all for the sake of the kingdom. That's how we know if we truly understand the significance of a crucified and resurrected Messiah. Do you understand the significance of the cross this morning? Adoniram Judson did. And Judson did. By the way, in India today, Myanmar in particular, there's more Baptists except for America, okay, and China, I believe, than any other place on the planet. It was this man who set off the great Baptist missionary, Protestant missionary movement for that, for that matter, in America. And it all came because he understood the significance of the cross. Elizabeth Freeman understood the significance of the cross. And that's why even in the most heinous of circumstances, she would write to her niece and say, Oh, I wish you would be a missionary like me. Do you understand the significance of the cross? If you're just going through the motions week in and week out, and it has not affected your pocketbook, it has not affected your time, it has not affected your home life, you don't understand the significance of the cross. And Jesus says, today you must repent. That's what he's calling for today. Don't you understand that you can't outgive what Jesus gives you in return? Don't you understand you can't outgive what he gave by his sufferings and death on behalf of sinners? Repent of that today. Repent of your idols and come to Christ. Let's pray. Father, I believe that we have some cross bearers in this church. Those who have taken up their cross, they've denied themselves and they follow you. And, and Lord, we are grateful that our salvation does not ground it on our ability to follow you because all of us fall short of your glory. Uh, even when we follow you, the best of us, that there's sin that taints our discipleship. We thank you that the ground of our salvation is not our performance. It's, it's the cross. It's actually Christ's obedience to your law and the cross and the resurrection. But Lord, recognizing the cross and recognizing what Jesus accomplished on the cross, recognizing that the resurrection more than any event in history demonstrates the cost that was paid, that is death. Recognizing that, Lord, there are some here today who have taken up their crosses and they follow you. I thank you for them. I pray that they would experience that life that you have promised more and more abundantly. Lord, I believe there's some here today that have not taken up their crosses. I believe that maybe they've hidden behind the false assurance of church membership or baptism or uh, some kind of prayer they prayed many years ago, but it was always a charade. It was fire insurance. And you will not have you will not be just fire insurance for us. If you're not Lord of our lives, you're not Lord at all of our lives. 
We pray today you would save them. You would open their hearts to the glory of Christ. That you would convict them of their sins. And of their need for a Savior and a Lord and a King and a Master. And that they would bow their hearts to King Jesus today in repentance and faith. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we stand and as we sing, won't you respond to what Jesus has to say to you this morning? Be all else to me.